there is enough food produced in the world for everybody. Unfortunately, most or many people do not have access to this food. We need to rethink our agri-food system, really a greater focus on access to nutritious food. Today, all what we hear, oh, there is a food crisis, we need to increase production. No, it's not. It is about access, sharing, inequalities. That's not about producing more and more and more when we are wasting 40% of the food produced in the world. Welcome to Season 4 of the Charity CEO Podcast, the podcast for charity leaders by charity leaders, bringing you inspirational and meaningful conversations with leaders who are driving change in the nonprofit space. I'm truly delighted and humbled that the show has been named in the Charity Times Top 10 Charity Podcast for 2022. Thank you all for that incredible endorsement. I'm Divya O'Connor, and here's the show. No child should die of hunger. In a world where enough food is produced to feed everyone on Earth, how is it that nearly 3 billion people, over a third of the world's population, can't get the food that they need to survive? In this episode, Jean-Michel Grand, CEO of Action Against Hunger UK, shares his views on what is driving this global humanitarian crisis of hunger and what action needs to be taken to resolve it. We talk about crises in Africa, Pakistan, Ukraine, and also Action Against Hunger's programmes right here in the UK, developed in response to an increase in food poverty and food insecurity for millions of UK households. Jean-Michel shares some powerful leadership lessons learned over 20 years of being a CEO, and he lays down the challenge to the UK's newly elected Prime Minister to put the UK's international aid spending back up to 0.7% and to reclaim Britain's position of influence on the global stage. It's truly a fascinating conversation. You're going to love it. Hi, Jean-Michel. Welcome to the Charity CEO podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Um, My pleasure to uh, be with you today. Well, now, Jean-Michel, you have the honour of being the first Frenchman to be a guest on this show. And I might just have one or two questions related to that in our icebreaker section, if that's okay. Yeah, what an (laughs) honour. So question one, what was your first job? My first job was in the humanitarian sector. So 28 years ago, interestingly, uh, I was supposed to be an history teacher. And I remember perfectly the summer where I received my first assignment as a teacher. But at the same time, life created an opportunity where I was offered to go to uh, Bosnia. And literally, It came out of nowhere. I never had any plan to join the sector. I never applied. But there was this life opportunity and a family friend asked me in the conversation, he said, do you want to go to Bosnia now? Immediately, I didn't have choice too much. It was not, oh, can you think about it and come back? So within three weeks, my life completely changed, turned down the offer to be a teacher, therefore ending my potential career in education. And then three weeks later, on the road to Croatia and Bosnia to be the convoy leader, a big name, but basically it means I was driving a former British Army Land Rover, painted it white, and opening the road for lorries of 
humanitarian assistance. So clearing the custom between Croatia and Bosnia, negotiating access through the multiple checkpoints and going in, opening the road through the forest, uh, try to avoid the front lines at the time, and providing food and logistics to our truck drivers who were probably at least 20 years older than me. So it was quite an interesting experience for me and first job, yes, in the humanitarian sector. And I've been in the sector for 28 years now. Wow. And as they say, the rest is history. So question two, tell us about your favorite book or a book that had a big impact on you. I'm a fervent reader, so I'm reading every single night or evenings and it's a routine that I have and I'm trying not to read any work-related reports or books. So I have many favorite authors from Hugo of Victor Hugo to Gabriel Garcia Marquez to historic novelists like I love Lindsay Davies or Susanna Gregory. But there is one author in particular who influenced my early thinking and education, especially on the values which have been driving my behavior since. It's, it's an author called Amin Malouf, and he's a novelist and intellectual. And I think he's both French and Lebanese. And he, he wrote a book, which is mostly novels, but there was a particular book that he wrote called The Disordered World. It was a post-9-11 reflection on the future and where we were going. He wrote something along the lines that there are no human rights for Europe and then human rights for Asia and then different human rights for Africa or human rights for the Muslim world. Is that nobody is in this world has been made for slavery, tyranny or ignorance. And he was saying something like, whenever we ne- neglect this truth, this basic truth, we are betraying humanity and ourselves. And the world that respects Diversity is a world that is moving forward and progress for being better. And I found that, that always keep that in my mind and it's really helped me to shape my thinking based on the eight years that I did in the various countries in conflict. So that was an author that I have huge respect for. Mm, I love that line that you quoted there, Jean-Michel, in terms of a world that respects diversity is one that is going to move forward and essentially be better. Mm. Question three, what would you say is your professional superpower? Adaptability. The world around us is changing very, very quickly and we are facing multiple challenges that it is not possible to plan for every eventuality. It might be in the past where we had strategy based on scenarios that were more or less predictable and there was kind of a linear growth or drive. Now we need to cope with high volatility and therefore our our strategic thinking should be a continuous process and which means a living, dynamic approach and multiple adjustment, constant adjustment. So... Over the last 20 years as CEO, I went through some uh, very major crises that required drastic decisions. I have no fear of change, no fear of taking big decisions, but also of changing my opinions. And I think the main lesson that I learned from these crises were that agility 
is now critical to navigate the, these challenges. And we can see today, well, this last, even this last two years, for us, between the obvious, the COVID, but then also the reduction of the international aid budget from 07 to 0.5%, absorption of the FID by the foreign office, the post-COVID ways of working, etc., and now inflation, cost of living, massive humanitarian crisis. And we will come back later on that, I hope, but I'm sure that the increasing number of people being hungry in the world. So all that have a direct effect on the organization and we need to be very, very agile to be relevant and add value. And continuing the theme of adaptability, question four is, Jean-Michel, from the perspective of a Frenchman who has lived mm-hmm. in the UK for the past 20 years, tell us three differences and perhaps also three similarities that you see between France and Britain. I was indeed born in France and there's no doubt, as you can hear with my accent, <laughs> However, I've lived more of my adult life in the UK than in France, and uh, I even became a British citizen a few years ago. So I don't want to perpetuate stereotypes. There's three aspects of the British society that I will say struck me when I arrived and even today, and I have a lot of respect for that. First of all is, is the social structure. And how people seem sometimes obsessed with social class and classes and asking questions about oh, your job, which school you're coming from, trying as if trying to define who you are by associating you with a class, putting you in a box. And I think that's the structure of the parliament with a, a house of lords and common, this title, lord, damn, sir, which is very uncommon for us and, and obviously the British monarchy, all contributing to this structure. And uh, I have lot of respect for Her Majesty the Queen, and uh, she's a fantastic, impressive leader. But it's something that is obviously completely different from France, and I don't say for the worst or the best, but this is some, clearly a distinction. The second is French are going to the streets when they are not happy, and I think that we are well known for that. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it happens quite often. <laughs> and I think that here... Despite the fact that there are some strikes time to time here and there, and we have seen recently with the train, and people have different ways to express themselves. And I think that it's quite interesting to see how first the French succeeded to get a lot of social benefits because of that, going to the streets. But it comes at a cost, so we can argue, and we are not here to argue about the pro and the cons of what they succeeded to get. But then the what... Clearly, this movement, have, they have shaped the way the society and the government is acting. And the French government today still fears social movement. And I don't feel that's the same relationship between the British government and the British people. And here again, it's not a question of judgment on which one is the best, but you ask me about the difference. And finally, the third one is more with the charity. I think that my son went here to school in the UK and immediately what I was very, very pleased to see is how charity is ingrained into the society, the culture, from the very, very youngest age at school. So it may have changed a little bit in France, but at my time and when I was school, I didn't hear about charity work before maybe the age of 20. So uh, I was very, very 
pleased and surprised, but happily surprised to see, uh, for example, my son, had, he was part of the charity committee in his school. He had to pick up which charity and the non-uniform day, etc. And, and I think as a result, the British charities have been the most influential and transformative charities in the world. And that's why I'm a bit surprised, and he has moved back to business. I'm very surprised to see that British charities have not been given any major role in the promotion of global Britain, when I think that they are best ambassadors of the British values of generosity or compassion. But at the same time, it probably does not help with creating business opportunities for British firms. So overall, to finish, I think that it's still important to keep in mind that for the vast majority of people living in villages in Asia, in Africa, in South America, there are not so many differences between French and British. We are Westerners. But diversity is great and I think should be celebrated. So we should celebrate our differences and not try to be the same. Mm, yes, it's so fascinating. And I know we're going to come on to talk about global Britain a little bit later. But our final icebreaker then, Jean-Michel, if you had the opportunity to interview anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and what one question would you like to ask them? And I wonder if you're going to choose somebody who is French no. or British. No, <laughs> I'm going to go for an Uruguayan, mm. for the legendary José Pepe Murica. He was a president of Uruguay from 2010 to 2015, I think. And he's often described as the world humblest aid of state. He used to give 90% of his salary to charities. He had almost no assets and riding his old bicycle and etc. And he was a very inspiring, not very well known in Europe, but definitely in Spain and Latin America. And the question I will ask him is, has humility helped him to be a better leader and how he managed to keep this humility when he was one of the most powerful person in the country. Wow, I love that. Did humility help him become a better leader? Yeah. Such an interesting question. So Jean-Michel, you are the long-standing CEO of Action Against Hunger UK. I understand that you have been involved with the organization for about 25 years. Tell us about its vision and mission. Yes, as you said, 25 years. It's also a statement of how passionate I am about this organization. And the vision is quite simple and it's almost, it is written in, in our name. It's a world without hunger. We refer to life-frightening hunger, famine, starvation, food crisis, and malnutrition, especially with children under five years old. We are doing a lot of focus of our technical approach on this children and especially the first 1,000 days between conception and the child's second birthday because it's a moment where a new human being, let's say, is building his immune system, which is going to ensure kind of a healthy life and intellectual development. So it's very critical. So to simplify and not going on too long, I think as an organization, we work on three areas of hunger the predict, the prevention, and the treatment of severe malnutrition. And so the predict is all about how can we anticipate potential crisis and having early warning system that can spot a potential crisis. And we use 
satellite, for example, in the Sahel region, looking at the biomass to try to detect pasture or, pasture or crop or water shortfalls. The second is the prevention, trying to understand in every context and villages and the economy of the families, what are the main drivers of hunger? What are the causes and how can we help to mitigate them or address them? So for agriculture or income generating activities or better in feeding, feeding practices, access to water, clean water or healthcare. So a wide range of activities that we are adapting to the needs and the situation. And finally, the treatment of severely malnourished children. And that's an area of a speciality for the organization. So we are well known in the sector for our specialization in the treatment of severely malnourished children for the last 40 years. On the treatment of severely malnourished, to put in context, we are providing as a network treatment to over 600,000 children on the five years of every year through our different partners and Ministry of Health. And so as I spoke, and I will finish on that, as I spoke about network, we are part of an Action Against Hunger International Network with seven members, but we are working in 50 countries, more or less, or 8,000 staff. So it's quite a large organization, mostly national staff, and helping around 26 million people every year. Jean-Michel, I'd love to understand a bit more about the, the scale and the context of this global problem. I mean, we have enough food for everyone on the planet, and yet nearly 3 billion people can't get the food that they need. A recent report by the United Nations, the UN Hunger Report, shows that 150 million more people are affected by hunger today than before the COVID-19 pandemic. And yeah. you touched upon the drivers of hunger as you were talking there. What do you think is really driving this problem on such a global scale and what action needs to be taken to resolve it? You're absolutely right to say a clear statement. There is enough food produced in the world for everybody. Unfortunately, most or many people do not have access to this food. So it's highlighting clear inequalities, first of all, in accessing food. The main drivers and the first one probably obvious, but war, conflict, are the biggest cause of hunger in the world today. And whilst uh, starving civilians and destroying hospitals and using hunger as a weapon is a criminal act recognized by the UN Security Council, but there is absolutely no accountability today and little is done really on that. So that's the first one, war, conflict, violence, the main driver destroying driving people out of their country. The second one, climate change, rising temperature, extreme weather, have a huge impact on people's livelihood and capacity to produce or to work. And especially those living in a very tough place, the situation in the Sahel region, so that's this desert area from Mauritania to Sudan across North Africa, is extremely worrying. The future, we are predicting a very, very serious situation and food crisis in the future there. The third one is, as I mentioned, inequalities is extreme poverty. So extreme poverty fueled by rising inequalities and especially gender inequalities. 
So it means that a vast number of people, they cannot afford to buy or to produce their own food and nutritious food. So that's the, the third one. And the, I think the fourth one is also the lack of access to the very basic services, healthcare, clean water, education, leading many young children to become sick, sick and malnourished. So we are these four main drivers. They vary, obviously, from context to context and country to country. But as a result, when there is an accelerator crisis like the COVID, COVID has accelerated, exacerbated some of these drivers and creating this situation. And we have seen now with Ukraine, the conflict of Ukraine has increased the price and therefore less access for the poor and extreme poor access to food. That's a... A very worrying situation and definitely the world is not on track to achieve the sustainable development goal of zero hunger by 2030. We are going backwards. I'm afraid that if drastic actions are not taken, it's going to be a mirage to think that we are going to be even close to the zero hunger. What to be done? Obviously, there is plenty, but three or four points, I think. First of all, first thing first, we spoke about severe malnutrition. No child should die off from hunger. That's the first thing is that we have the treatment. This treatment has 95% cure rate. It costs 50 quid, 50 pounds. Is it too expensive? No, because today the, the main problem we have is not about the treatment of these children. It's about to how these children have access to the treatment. And only 20% in the world, 20% of the severely malnourished children in the world have access. So that's... Number one, first thing, saving life. The second one is the UN, the United Nations Security Council is failing the world population again and again. Its primary responsibility was to maintain security and peace. But now most of its members are involved in conflict. Not only they are involved, but they are also preventing conflict to be sorted out, to find a solution. There is clearly... A major reform that has been has to be taken on the Security Council, and look at the accountability. It's like the 180 states in the world are accountable to the Security Council rather than the other way around. The five most powerful countries should be accountable to the rest, and not there is definitely something wrong in not in the intention, but in the way that the Security Council is completely dysfunctioning. The other one is, is about we need to rethink our agri-food system, really a greater focus on access to nutritious food. Today, all what we hear, oh, there is a food crisis, we need to increase production. No, it's not. It is about access, sharing, inequalities. That's not about producing more and more and more when we are wasting 40% of the food produced in the world. They are cleverest way to work and to address that. And clearly, there should be more priority to local food production, food sovereignty, agroecology. I think that this, the concept that feeding all people, financial profitability and environment and the protection of the environment, they are not mutually exclusive. And I think that we need to find solution and having a rethink of our agri-food system when the three of them can coexist and complement each other. And lastly, is that we need to stop 
to have this big announcement from government or the G7 and trumpeting that there is new initiative, saving the world, big commitment, that there will be 500 million people saved or out of food insecurity by 2030, the SDG. Let's have less commitment, but let's have this government be accountable and just do what they say they will do. Yes, and talking about government, uh, just this week, Liz Truss has been newly elected as the Prime Minister for the UK. And when she was Foreign Secretary, she, of course, committed in her international development strategy to step up the UK's humanitarian assistance and really get aid to those who need it most. You mentioned earlier about the global Britain and Britain's influence on the world stage. Mm. What would you like to see from the new UK government? And if you had a message for Liz Truss right now, what would that be? First of all, put the UK back on a clear path to spending 0.7% of the gross national income on AIDS, on development, sorry, international development, so that we can go back to an investment on cost-effective action to prevent famine and other. It's 0.7%. If we turn around, is to say that for the moment we are spending schematically 99.3% on UK and 0.7% on the rest of the world. So if we put in perspective 0.5 or 0.7%, which still is 5 billion pounds which disappeared last year or the year before, that's a massive cut on the very small budget. So the first thing is, let's have a clear path back to spending 0.7%. Second is to put the climate change action on the top of the government agenda. So the low carbon energy is not only a way for the UK to address the energy crisis, so very interested to see what's going to be the measure announced by the government in terms of the energy, but it's also essential for limiting the future humanitarian crisis. Look today at the drought in East Africa, the flood in Pakistan. So climate change is clearly a top priority and it's not even anymore climate change, it's a climate emergency. That's how we should call it. The next point will be, as I just mentioned previously, the UK should show leadership in fulfilling or implementing what they have committed or what the G7 has committed. For example, last year, they committed to what they call a famine prevention and humanitarian crisis compact, a long title. It includes a commitment to act earlier and early when there is a crisis to try to avoid and prevent food crisis or, or humanitarian crisis to escalate and become worse. So just focus on less, but just deliver and show leadership. And lastly, you mentioned Global Britain. We need to reconnect the FCDO with the British NGOs. That's here. I'm mm. speaking on, it's my perception. I, I don't want to speak on behalf of the, when I say British NGOs, it's overseas NGOs, the organization working overseas. I think that there is so much that the British NGOs can do in the implementation of the government strategy, international development strategy. And they are the best ambassador of the values. And they would be a very, very, I think, efficient investment, a good investment in maintaining the, the so-called Great Britain global standing. But today, I'm afraid to say that here again, my perception based on 
the direction and what we have seen over the last two years since the absorption of the FID by FCDO is that British NGOs are marginalized. Yes, consulted, doesn't really cost too much to ask advice and organize meeting. But when it's about delivering concrete projects, the FCDO prefer international institutions rather than British NGOs. And I think there is something wrong here when the British population, citizens are so generous towards the charities. But this generosity, this relationship is not mirror at government level. So there is something that needs to be addressed here. I wonder, Jean-Michel, if you could just continue that line of thinking in terms of the transference of power from the global north to the global south. And what are your thoughts on something that's often talked about in the international aid sector, which is of decolonization? Mm. First of all, colonization is a shameful moment of the history of our countries. And, and in the charity sector, and I hope in most of the population, we are deeply ashamed of that, but we never really confronted it. It took the killing of uh, George Floyd in 2020 for many charities and large part of the society to stand up and start to, let's say, undo colonialism. So today the path, the direction is, is about to try to see how we can address some of the legacy of colonization and colonization. And it starts by the mindset of people and the mindset on racism, on sexism, on power, on habits of power. And I think that colonialism was also based or built on the idea that white Western people, they know more how to fix another country issue mm. more than their own population. And that's really the crux of the problem, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. I would say, indeed, we are working in 51 countries and and we are still in a journey, and I think I, I will not pretend that we are today where we should be. But clearly, there is a commitment and a willingness at every level within the organization to do better. And it starts by fighting this mindset and behaviors. So, fighting all forms of racism or abuse of power, having very strong ethics and really translate these policies or ethics into behavior with all the mechanisms that we should put in place in terms of preventing, reporting, or and addressing abuses. So that's the first one, the zero tolerance on any form of abuse. The second is promote diversity and inclusion. It started, for example, many of our so-called expatriates, so it means international staff that we are sending in these 51 countries, Many of them, and especially over the last 10 years, they are not anymore from the West. They are mostly, for us, for example, in the UK, we have 80, around 80 international staff recruited that we have sent. I don't think we have less, we have more than 5 to 10% of white Europeans in that. Still a lot of progress to make in diversity, especially at headquarter level and in senior leadership. That's really two, as well as board, men, board level. So that's still an area that we want. And the last one I wanted to mention on that, how we can concretely translate this ambition on decolonization is about how we are transferring power of 
especially of decision-making to the communities where we are working. So our first step is about what we call in our sector, the localization is that we are helping or transferring implementation of our activities or working more with local partners, full local partners, local clinics, local governments. But more importantly for me, it's about how we are engaging with community-based organization. It's about being closer to the communities themselves and get population in the decision-making process is what is for me today at stake. We have launched a two-year study just six months ago, trying to go into the details about how Action Against Hunger, we are involving communities into the cycle, the program cycle. I think that we do a lot of consultation, groups meeting, asking people what are their needs, analysis of data, etc. There is good participation of community on that. But what we want to see is what are the evidence that we have that they are in the decision-making process and who is really deciding about what is good for them and what type of activities. And I think that that's what we want to test because a fear is that when it's about decision-making, the participation and the transfer of power is less. And that's an area that we want to assess in detail in order to take measures. And I think when this transfer of decision-making will be achieved, I think that will be a massive step forward in a good direction. And I remember when I was in Chechnya some 20 years ago, we had this approach. We came to the communities living in the mountains and we we're saying, okay, we have a list of beneficiaries and of criteria for who should be the people who are going to benefit from food distribution that we were doing at that time. So we came, this list, discussed with the leaders, etc. They say yes, blah, blah, blah. Then we came back a few weeks later asking them, okay, have you identify the people and they say, you know what? No, it's shared between everybody equally because we have discussed with the community and the people in the village and that's what they want. So either you agree or you don't distribute. Wow. So they were crystal clear and the Chechen, <laughs> when they want something and they are very clear, the message is very clear. So it was a non-negotiable and fair enough. And I think that we accepted and we went and we did what the community wanted. It went very, very well and we continued this relationship for many years. After that, it's a process of trust and then seeing how we can both organization and manage not only what they want, but also after that, how we negotiate with our donors about the compliance and etc. And so we are... I think NGOs today should be a bridge in the middle between communities. It's still a journey, and let's be honest, we are only at the very beginning of this journey. Yes, it's such a, a fascinating area of conversation and discussion. But Jean-Michel, coming back to talking about climate change or climate emergency, as you rightly called it, I know that you sit on the board of the DEC, the Disasters Emergency Committee, which has just launched its appeal for the victims of the floods in Pakistan. And it's incredibly devastating to think that one third of Pakistan is currently underwater. I mean, that is a landmass about the size of the whole of the UK, which is just devastating. 
The third sector publication reported yesterday that over £16 million has been raised in five days for the DC Pakistan floods appeal, which includes a £5 million match funding from the UK government, which is excellent. But what actually caught my eye was the very last line of that article, which stated that the DEC's humanitarian appeal for Ukraine, following Russia's invasion of the country earlier this year, actually raised £100 million in its first five days. And I hope this isn't too controversial a question, but I'd really like to understand why the difference. And in your experience, what is it that makes one appeal perform significantly more in terms of money it's raised than another? Mm. That's an excellent question that we are, I think, struggling with. First of all, and I will come back to your question about the difference between the appeal. We are also, as a DEC, we have been discussing a lot about the situation in the Horn of Africa, which there was a report just two days ago on the scale and the risk of famine on two districts in Somalia. But we have not launched an appeal as a DEC. There are three criteria that the DEC is looking at to take a decision. The scale of the needs, the ability of the members of the DEC, so the 15 NGOs, to respond adequately. And the third one, will the public support the appeal? And to get the public on board, we need the media. And what is the media coverage and the broadcasters? Often, criteria one and two are met, but the criteria three is the most critical. So we have indeed situation where we had had a fantastic response for the Ukraine appeal. Good response so far, but obviously less for the Pakistan floods and no appeal for the Horn of Africa. Why people are responding to an appeal or not, or why the media are covering, because the two are linked. It means the more it is on the news, the more people are going to know about a crisis, are likely to feel some compassion and willing to help. So the coverage of a crisis is a critical element in the making and why people are responding or not. Hmm. Then after that, I think that donating to or responding to an emergency appeal or humanitarian situation is often the result of emotions. So people have to feel emotionally or they have to feel a link, something which appeals to them personally. And I think in Ukraine, the proximity was, I think, a major element. The media coverage, when it's every single day in the news for weeks and weeks and months, but it was the proximity. It means that it could happen to Britain today, tomorrow. So I think that there was an element of proximity, of fear, and obviously association in the way that Ukrainians' ways of living, they are Europeans, so they are very close to the British. As I mentioned, if you, in the scale of the world, the diversity of the world, an Ukrainian and the British lifestyle are quite close. So there was definitely an association of the fear and sharing the fear and, and then having Ukrainian coming in mass in the country, in Europe, seeing people coming. Pakistan is it's also interesting because there is a very strong Pakistani community in the UK. And I think that they are very good spokesperson for what's happening in Pakistan. So raising the awareness, and I think that's also why an appeal was launched for Pakistan, is that there was really a lot of voices around. Now, indeed, 
East Africa is a bit sad in the way that how we can make this link and try to raise awareness is something that we are working. can guarantee we have so many discussions about how can we raise the awareness and trying to bring the situation in East Africa to the public. There is less direct link between the British society and Somalia or Ethiopia or Kenya. And I think that we hope it's not going to be the case, but if famine is developing in East Africa, that's probably when there will be media coverage and when there will be mobilization because they are connected after that. So it's always very difficult. There are so many crises in the world that we would like to have to raise and launch a DC appeal. But let's not forget that if we do too many appeals, it's going to lose its interest. We joined Ashwanya Sangha, we joined the DC 2018, so four years ago. It's a, such a fantastic group of people, a mechanism of fundraising, very professional, very thick. But the trust that the British people have in the DEC, all the institutions trust the DEC for what they are doing and the quality and the seriousness. And I think that this is extremely valuable. It is, in some extent, very unfair how we can address that. We are trying to find ways as members of the DEC, but find ways to raise awareness on the side, I would say outside of the DEC appeal, just to make the system a bit fairer. But it's not perfect, that's clear. Indeed. And Jean-Michel, I know we've been talking about crises in countries like Pakistan and Africa and Ukraine, but right here in the UK, we're certainly not exempt from the impact mm. of all of these man-made conflicts or natural disasters, indeed. Tell us about the impact that you are seeing right here in the UK from things like the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, climate change and the cost of living crisis, specifically on food poverty and food mm. insecurity in the UK. And how has Action Against Hunger UK responded to this need here? First of all, as you can imagine, Action Against Hunger works primarily in fragile states where governments are weak or where public services are not existing and there is economic crisis, refugees, etc. However, in we are an organization driven by the needs. So the needs are the main criteria that we are looking at. And in 2020, with the COVID, we started to be extremely worried about the impact of the measures taken to mitigate the spread of the pandemic and how it has led to a rapid rise of food poverty in the UK. So we decided to look at the situation into more detail and to see what could be the added value that our organization could do in the UK. So there is an extensive network on food banks and we decided that we don't see any value for us to add to the food bank. So we decided to focus on working with existing partners on food pantries. It's called food pantries. In other areas, it's social supermarket. I think there are several names across the UK. The concept is quite simple. Is is people with low revenue become a member of a food pantry. They contribute with kind of a membership fee. It can be two, three pounds. But in return, they can choose every month the equivalent of around 30 pounds of food. We like this system and we have been supporting 
food pantries across the UK at very small scale for the moment, but in Lewisham here, in Manchester, in Birmingham, in Somerset. And we like this system because it's based on some key principles that those who are benefiting, they have to contribute. Okay, it's symbolic, but they have to, this membership fee, they have to contribute. They can choose what they want rather than we give them what a pack, a parcel, and say that's what you have. So there is an element of choices, and it's every month rather than just being a couple of times during the year. So every month. So it, we think it's helping the whole system of food pantries aims to bring some dignity in this very difficult moment that households and families are facing. And obviously, it's nobody's aspiration to rely on charity for its food. And I think that we try to make it the most respectful possible. The coming winter is absolutely worrying. Okay, we speak about the energy price, but inflation, 10% inflation, we, mm. we almost forget that, of course, the one is linked to the other, but it's not only energy. It's food is every single thing has increased by minimum 10% and is very a bare minimum. It's often more than that. How people on the low revenues are going to be able to cope, it's extremely worrying. We are discussing with our, some of our partners here to see how we can scale up some of our activities during the winter and what will be the best way to help at our very modest level as an organization. Yes, it'll be interesting to see what Liz Trust and her new government announces in terms of helping families with rising prices and the cost of energy, as well as all of that in the months to come. But Jean-Michel, I'd love to hear more about your personal story now. I mean, you have been in a leadership role with Action Against Hunger UK. Is it 20 years you've actually been in the CEO seat? Yes, it's going to be 20 years next year. Wow. Well, tell us more about that journey. And please do also share some key leadership lessons that you've learned along the way. Like I mentioned at the very beginning that I had no plan to join charities anywhere. I had no plan to become a CEO. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many CEOs actually say that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm sure that's probably not an aspiration in the career. That's not something that we are planning. If we continue from uh, when I joined the Bosnia, when I was in Bosnia, I spent eight years going from country to country and mostly war zones to war zones from Bosnia to Chechnya, to the Rohingyas, but the Burmese side or Myanmar side, to a civil war in Tajikistan and back again for the second war in Chechnya. So I spent eight years going from conflict to conflict, which has been an amazing, very rich, emotional, personal experience was shaped definitively my way of thinking, my approach of life, my values. Then after that, I, I was lucky to be proposed either a job in Paris or a job in London. And I decided to join London, knowing that I should have mentioned that I worked out of this eight years, it was six with Action Against Hunger already. <laughs> so, and when I came to the UK, I did, a, after a few months, I did a cover, matinee cover for the, the CEO, and then she did not come back. So how the board asked me to stay longer. That's the journey. It's a very self-made journey in the way that, as I said, I've learned so much 
seize opportunities. And I think that that's something that I've tried to transmit to my children is to say, when you have an opportunity, first of all, opportunities do not knock on your door. You have to work and create opportunities or contribute to opportunities. And when it comes, seize it or seize them. Then these 20 years have been incredibly enriching in terms of leadership and, and position of CEO. I've been lucky to have a mentor or first a mentor, then the company, a company called Bain, Bain and Company. They are providing mm-hmm. strategic advice. And for the last 15 years, I have one of the senior partners now at Bain who has been my my mentor, my guide uh, for this thing. And I've learned so much and they have created this CEO group with whom they are sharing all their learning and experience from the private sector and how this could be adapted to the charitable sector. And I've learned so much. And now most of the key elements of my thinking are often inspired by what I learned from this exchange with CEOs. And now the group of CEOs is a mix between charities and private sector. So it's even more interesting. The learnings are huge, but if I had to pick up some, first of all, it's about decisions because at the end, a CEO is also about helping and making decisions. So there is, it's a process to consult, to discuss, to make your opinion and take decisions because, and I try all the time to not to postpone time for decision because when it's too long, it can be worse. Not taking a decision is often worse than taking a poor decision. So the element of decision-making, the participation, who you should consult, who should agree, who will be the final decision-maker, who will implement, has to be robust. And having the right people knowing what is expected from them in this process. So that's the, the first one. The second one is... I mentioned it at the very beginning when we spoke about adaptability, not to fear changes, but really to embrace them. And I had to, as I mentioned, to manage two very, very big crises and radical changes were needed. And we did it as a team. We had consideration. The board has been fantastic. And that's the next one. It's the relationship between the senior manager, the CEO, the board is critical. And when I say senior management, I have now for the last few years, I've decided that the senior management is not anymore only the directors. The backbone of the organization is heads of units, those who are on senior management level, and then the directors. And this group, for us, it represents around 15 people, are really the backbone of the organization. It's not disrespectful for all the other members of the staff, but I think that this when you succeed to engage and discuss with this enlarged group and get agreement and collective decision, that's easier for you as a CEO to move forward because you have the backup, the back by all these people. But also it means that you have a large consultation and ideas are coming from this group. So I found it extremely interesting to work with a larger group of senior leaders. We spoke about crisis. Every crisis is an opportunity. This, I have learned that again and again and again. Crises are disruptors and 
yes, there is a need for short-time solutions to react to a crisis, but all the time it's about looking forward about what we need to learn, why we are in this situation and what should we do differently. And for example, when we had this the COVID situation, we went through a major, major crisis in terms of we lost so much of our income, private income, because we are working a lot with the hospitality and they closed the door. So we lost one, two million almost of income like that in terms of projected income. But immediately, so we took very tough measures. But immediately after, so it was in March, COVID, April, we took tough decision. In June already, two months later, we relaunched a complete strategy review of the organization. And so that's the moment that we need to think about the future. We had no idea how long the crisis will last, but it was a moment where we said, okay, let's look at what, why we are in this situation and where we want to be. And it has been extremely useful as well in terms of changing the mindset of people from a survival mode to looking forward at the next step, which is the next six months to eight, one year, and then most importantly, after that. And he gave hopes. And I think that was critical for us because we had to go through, unfortunately, a series of redundancy. It was emotionally strong. It was the first time that I had to make redundancies at scale in the organization of my last 20 years. Then after that, we had, once we went through this very difficult period, the fact that we were discussing about strategy, it was about how we infuse or drive the remaining of the team towards something positive, aspirational, and also they were engaged into looking at the future of the organization. So that's something that we need all the time. I've been passing this motto to my team. Every crisis is an opportunity to think before taking quick decision or just to do the same as we did. We need to think about, okay, what does it mean? What can we change? Is there a need for change? That and the last one, which was, if they ask anybody from Bain listening to this podcast, they will recognize is that what I've learned from Bain is to say, whilst innovation is good and creativity really needs to be promoted, just make sure that first you bring your core activities. It means what you are good at to its full potential. This is a very interesting exercise all the time to say, okay, what is the value that our organization is bringing? What are we good at in terms of our impact, in terms of how people value what we are providing to them? Let's build on that. Let's be bigger, having something replicable, scalable on what we are good at. And let's, the rest, if necessary, we cut, but let's try not to diversify too much and provide low quality or average quality on what we are doing. Let's try to all the time thinking about the added value that we are bringing. Wow, some really powerful lessons there, Jean-Michel. Thank you. I really loved what you shared there. And I'm just going to briefly summarize some of the key learnings. So number one is that opportunities don't knock on your door. You have to work to create them and then seize them. 
And number two is like not taking a decision can be worse than taking a poor decision. You also said don't fear change, leverage your strengths and what you're really good at and what is your unique capacity to add value. And then my favorite one is really every crisis is an opportunity and that we should view crises as disruptors and almost as a catalyst for the next evolution of your organization of the work that you're doing. And Jean-Michel, looking back at your own leadership journey, perhaps what is one thing that you might, looking back, say to yourself on day one of first becoming a CEO? That at the end, even if we often say that CEO is a, a lonely position, it is not. It's lonely if you isolate yourself, but trust your team, pick up the right people, train them, invest in them, It's a team effort. It's not a lonely job. If you finish by being lonely, is that you did something wrong. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you, Jean-Michel. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I've really loved speaking with you. And thank you for being a guest on the show. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure. Thanks, Divya. Every crisis is an opportunity. And we need to treat crises as opportunities to disrupt and change what is not working. From COVID-19 to conflict, climate change, and the rising cost of living, the world is currently facing several crises. But as Jean-Michel Grand, CEO of Action Against Hunger UK, so eloquently shared, a child not having enough food to eat in order to stay alive should not be one that is allowed to continue. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of the Charity CEO Podcast a show that, thanks to you, our listeners, has repeatedly reached the number one spot in Apple's non-profit podcast category. If you found this conversation valuable, please share or tag us on Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram, and make sure you subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button on your podcast app. If you're feeling inspired or uplifted by what you have just heard, please share the joy and leave us a five-star review. Visit our website, thecharityceo.com, for full show details, information on previous season episodes, and to submit ideas for future guests. In order to balance my personal and professional commitments, the show will now come to you once a month instead of fortnightly. But I assure you, it will be worth the wait. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.